1: everybody thank you so much for joining me again today i've got a friend of mine on this is mika tuska now mika is from finland if you know who mika is you know what an amazing player he is if you don't you need to check out mika so first of all thank you so much for being here today with me bud
0: thank you for having me it's always a pleasure to be hanging with you
1: (laughs) mika and i just a little story because we're going to get into all of these things but mika is the creator of something called mr Fastfinger. if you know what that is and it's so bizarre to me because I'm a little bit older than Mika is. When I was in college, I don't know how I stumbled onto Mr. Fastfinger because these are early days of internet and all of that kind of stuff. Those of you out there, if you don't know what Mr. Fastfinger is, you totally need to check it out and we will talk about it. But it's so crazy that after many years of being introduced to Mr. Fastfinger, because you know when I was in college, that's when I was really trying to hone my chops and things like that. And that, Mr. Fastfinger, was a great resource for learning how to do really cool stuff. And then here we meet, I don't remember what year it was, a few years ago, right before COVID, 2018, 2019, something. I went out to Germany, and Mika and I met at Hughes & Kettner event, and then we wound up playing the Rockin' 1000 at the Commerce Bank Arena together, and that's where we got to know each other, so... I just want to, again, say Mika is an amazing guitar player. If you haven't heard him play, you totally need to check him out and we'll talk all of that. But he's also an amazing songwriter and just a super, super, super cool guy. So I really do appreciate you taking time out to hang out with me, Matt.
0: Thank you. Making me blush over here. (laughs) Finnish people are not ready to take such an amount of compliments at one take.
1: Let's start off by talking a little bit about, tell people about Mr. Fastfinger since I've already set that up.
0: It was really the intuition taking place. I'm trying to tell this very short, but I was studying multimedia and animation and design early 2000. I was supposed to come up with a final project for the school. I wanted to create something for the guitar players. I wanted to create something for the internet, the guitar players over there. I wanted to combine all the possible things that I loved. My passion for animation, cartoon, a little bit of gaming, and obviously guitar playing style and all my musical heroes. And I created this imaginary world, like an island. If you went to this website, Guitar Stretch Show, Mr. Fastfinger, animated guitar player, this guru or sensei who would teach you the hottest licks and would do it with a style, doing all these choreographies, kicks and moves while performing these very challenging and badass guitar licks and solo. It was just like for the love of for the guitar playing, but also for all the animation and stuff. An amazing project that I really gave my everything at that time of life. And it's a funny thing that that character, since when that website came out, the earth exploded and expanded. I was suddenly getting all sort of contacts with the world and the internet really came to me. I'm still going after that big bang that happened in 2005. I'm still looking uh, with Mr. Fastfinger being character.
1: That's crazy because, you know, I live in small town Fargo, North Dakota, and I was aware of it. And so it was just, you're right, it encompassed so many different elements of multimedia, and I just thought it was the coolest thing. So when I found out that that was actually you, I was... But let's talk about your playing style a little bit. I love the way you play, and we're going to get into the history of your guitar playing and things like that. But where does your playing style come from? Like what kind of people did you study or do you study or without getting way too out there, although I would really love to hear you get way out there. How do you think about your guitar style?
0: Well, as guitar players, we're true to ourselves. We are reflecting everything that we ever hear or really loved. Our personalities, also everything, effect we're making. Obviously, as a kid, I loved all the same guitar heroes as everybody else. All the Steves and Joes and all those guitar players. Steve Weiss and Eddie Van Halen. Guitar school, basically all those guys and we were pretty much still the the same age so we followed the same culture same guitar stuff the late 80s early 90s really affected my guitar player first of all around maybe 90 I had like a several years of being very heavily into guitar playing and into guitar players but then I kind of started drifting into composition and I started listening to um, different styles of music. I think things started going to not wrong direction but other directions once I got introduced to the music of Frank Zappa and that that got me to a lot of different directions. Frank music I found Igor Stravinsky. I still feel that sometimes when I improvise I might do a little bit of homage to some melodies that I've heard in uh, Rite of Spring or Firebird or some of these pieces that I really loved and listened a lot as a kid. I even got the manuscript from Library. I would have able to try to follow Rite of Spring while listening. Like every day after school, I would do that. I really loved that. But then I also went listening to artists like Bjork or I loved the 90s David Bowie a lot. That music, it's kind of funny, but that music, I was wondering, of some of the music that I created those days, where did I get all this Mixolydian flat six, all these tonalities and sounds? And not too long ago, I listened to some of David Bowie albums, and there were some songs that had that scale in great use, that tonality, and probably got some of those sounds such a surprising source. I was listening to a lot of different styles and a lot of music that I really shaped my vocabulary. And I think the early days, teenage years, really can shape your taste in music.
1: Yeah, it's interesting how with a lot of this stuff, like with the David Bowie stuff, would you sit down and actually learn it? Or was it just something that was you were absorbing more orally than anything?
0: Those days, I created a lot of music without the guitar, maybe not even involved at all. I was creating a lot of strange music with sounds and samples and this since and, and really getting into creating music with a computer and dhw and a lot of times i was just going with the ear and i didn't really went like transcribing music or i was just listening heavily to sounds and things back then
1: so when you think about your early days like when you were a kid can you remember what artist or what music or what song impacted you where you realized that music or guitar or whatever it was was like a real thing. And you went, oh my God, this connects with me.
0: When I really got into music, my first band that I was really into was a Finnish band called Dingo. I was maybe seven years or something. The largest audience in Finland was girls and everybody was crazy, but I was still some guys. Really, I love that music as well. And it was really good songwriting and really catchy songs. But then my older brother started getting into KISS and The Boss and Iron Maiden and everything, more like hard rock, heavy metal and that stuff. And sooner or later, I gave in and I really started. I think my first hard rock cassette that I bought was Motley Crue's Theater of Pain. So that was 85. I was nine years old then. And we would call it heavy rock back then. (laughs) So did anybody
1: else in your family play or was it just you?
0: Well, my older brother, he was the one who got the first electric guitar in the house. And we didn't really know how to play the guitar. But remember that when he would go out with his friends, I would sneak into his room and secretly go to mess around with his cheap Stratocaster copy and try to figure out how the whammy bar works. Obviously doing it like wrong direction. It didn't give any impact over the sound. And also bought like a really cheap cardboard type of acoustic guitar. That was my first guitar. It wasn't until I was in sixth grade, I formed a band with my classmates. I couldn't play the guitar yet, but I had that guitar. And during the first band rehearsals, I was the band leader. I would sing or play the piano a little bit. I had some song ideas, sort of ripped off songs. I saw during the first band rehearsals, we would have the opportunity to go to the music class on Friday mornings. And I saw how guitar can be tuned into the keys of piano. I had a keyboard synthesizer at home, which was my first instrument. I was able to now tune the guitar into that synthesizer that I had. And after that, I invented the pentatonic scale. (laughs) You were the one. Yeah, I always say that because I sort of like just by ear, I went for the scale. My fingering really was this. That was my fingering for the pentatonic. Then I learned to play along. Anthrax has a, had a new album, State of Euphoria. I learned how to play the power chord. And I was just putting on the cassette and I would try to play along the whole album uh, with power chords, <laughs> trying to nail the right pitches. Probably didn't get too many chords right, but it was still a lot of trying. So like many of us, did you then start really
1: by playing by ear? That's kind of what everything was for you, was just trying to figure out...
0: Our music book from the school and the last page, there was a chart for all the chords. So I was able to learn some of the basic chords from there. And then I did my best to learn simple songs from songs that I had recorded from radio or some albums that I had. Remember like the song, Baby, Please Don't Go. I remember having that song on cassette. It might have been the ACDC version of that song, but that riff and everything, learning that by ear. There was a lot of that. But then I think when I was in the seventh grade, I realized that there are these magazines found on kiosks. And they were like Guitar World and Guitar Player magazines. And I learned how to read tablatures. Then totally new thing opened right in front of me, really different level. I remember the first magazine that I had, they were all these Alex columns and stuff available. They were like, what's this? <laughs> like three note per string stuff that was pretty interesting
1: that's interesting because that's so much how things happen you know trying to learn little things by ear and whatever a friend locally might like i remember seeing a friend of mine playing a motley Crue tune and he was somewhere halfway up on the fretboard and i was like i didn't even realize you could go up there because all i knew was like g d i didn't even realize anything else existed up there it's pretty funny when something mind-blowing happens and you go oh my god i so those magazines were really good for that because once you figured out how to read tab There was always something, every magazine came out and you're like, no, that existed. Didn't know you could do something like that.
0: Yeah. And thanks to my older brother and his friends, many times Metallica tablature books would end up in our house. So I would try to learn Justice for All or Master of Puppet songs from the books, those famous books that aren't really so accurate when it comes to some of the parts. One of the things that was interesting around those days, we had very limited stuff that you could find from the local music shop. And I remember buying like 1987 Whitesnake. That book actually had transcriptions to the whole band. So it was like a manuscript. Drums, bass, keys. I remember trying to figure out some of the John Sykes guitar solos. And it didn't make sense. And it didn't sound right. And it was just not making sense. And that was the point where you realized, okay, there might be some error. So use your brains and figure out things. So it's actually playable. So I think in a certain way, I was learning by fixing some of the stuff that was given to me. It wasn't perfect. For those
1: of you that might not be as old as we are, back in the day, there was a company called Cherry Lane. And they're the ones that first spearheaded tablature books. Like I remember having a Def Leopard book and the notes weren't right or it was the wrong octave and things like that. My biggest experience with that was it came out and I was all excited because I was like, wow, I would love to learn how to do this. And it was way beyond my technical abilities at that time. But I remember the book, and it was Cherry Lane, and the book was written with his really fast runs in a position this way on the guitar. I was sitting there trying to work on it, and I couldn't get fast enough trying to go through these scales. And then shortly thereafter, Ingve came to Fargo with Quiet Riot. He opened for Quiet Riot. And you got to remember, back then there was no YouTube or anything, so all you knew was a picture in a magazine or whatever it might be because this would have been in the the 80s. So he comes running out on stage and does his Richie Blackmore thing, and he drops down on a knee, and he's right in front and center of the stage here. And he comes out, and he's right in front of me, and he's doing this. And I was like, oh, my God. I never thought about single-string movement this way. And he was the tap guru back then. I went out for supper with Wolf Marshall. That's him. And I asked him about that, and he's like, yeah. What happens is when we try and figure these things out, we're figuring out pitches. And then when it goes to machine that transcribes this stuff, the conversion doesn't take into account logistic. And that was the answer that I got. So it was a struggle back then because people weren't thinking from a guitar perspective. They were just thinking from a pitch perspective. And so same thing as you, you, know, you had to sit and really figure out how these things were supposed to go. And I think it was really important for us in development on not only hearing things, but being able to visualize things on the fretboard.
0: Some of the best stuff was when guitar magazines would have private lessons with all these great guitar heroes. I remember like Nuno Betancourt having a guitar lesson, and really the tablature would be accurate because they had like a, the editor with him and everything. That would be a introduction to how Nuno would actually play. And then when you took the tablature book, which was really not accurate When it came to transcription, once again, that was kind of like uh, you would do connecting these dots and realizing, okay, this is how it should go. And those lessons were really on the magazines. One more thing. I think the final thing after magazines and records, the final thing that really opened the thing was the instructional videos. Seeing somebody like Paul Gilbert do his thing, Intense Rock, seeing it on video, audio, video. And that was the thing. That's how you have to do it.
1: That was Mika's talking about started coming out. Again, I would think in the mid 80s, I lived in a trailer court and I used to mow lawns to get enough money to go buy a video because they were about $50 US dollars at that time. So they weren't cheap. So I would save up my money and go buy. I had like Chris Impeliteri and Gilbert. I don't remember how many I had, but I had a number of these. I remember my first experience. I put in the video and tried to watch it kind of like a movie where I would just watch it and expect at the end, I would like learn something, and you'd get 12 seconds in and not have a clue what was going on, you know? That's when I had the rude awakening that you need to watch like the smallest little piece and press pause and then sit there and do that for nine hours, you know? (laughs) Exactly. I hope you're enjoying this episode so far and you're getting motivated to take your guitar playing to the next level. Please do me a favor and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It'll help the show grow and reach more rock stars like you who want to improve their guitar playing. Also, I'd love to know what parts of the episode you liked, as well as what you learned. So please share this podcast and tag us at GuitarZoom.com on your social post. And now, let's get back to the podcast. Did you start taking
0: guitar lessons or anything at any point? Or have you always just kind of figured it out? I did take one guitar lesson at the very early days from one local guy. It was really helpful. I think regret not taking any more of those lessons. Why? I didn't do that, but it was stupidity that would have been really helpful and given me a a greater and faster start. I don't know how long I had been playing. A couple of years I had been playing the guitar, and I thought I was pretty good. But then I was playing in this metal band. Then our singer suggested that if we would take another guitar player, he would know one guy, be great guitar player, we would consider having a second guitar player in the band. So... This guy, Ismo, came to the band rehearsals audition. And he would be doing his ABC to guitar playing was basically Paul Gilbert, intense rock. He didn't know what he was doing, but he was like... (laughs) He was doing all those really authentic sounding, like blurry guitar, really staggering sound. And yeah, we took him to our band. And what happened was... Besides band rehearsals every Monday on Wednesdays, I would go to his place and we would spend an evening together showing things to each other. I would know more maybe from the musical side of things and he would know more from the technical perspective. And we would really kick our each other's asses big time in a very most friendly and best possible way. Those one, two years from there, I was like, that was a major leap for me in a good way, competitive environment. Even when we went to band rehearsal, we gave each other's licks. (laughs) So I would give him some kind of exercise and he would give me an exercise and challenge each other. In a way, we teach each other, even though we weren't really teachers or didn't, we were learning at the same time, but that was really helpful. After that, just like maybe 10 years ago, I took several lessons from one guitar teacher here in Finland, but other than that, I never really had it. I never took guitar lessons, which is a little bit regret about that.
1: Right. So when you went to college, did you study like music theory or composition or any of those things while you were in college?
0: No. When it comes to composition, one of the best awakenings was when I went to study multimedia and we had this class of visual arts and color. And everything this teacher talked about color and visuals. I would reflect through music, and I made a lot of clicks in my head while just listening to this teacher talk about these things. My whole life has really been like trial and error, just learning by doing it and listening to what others are doing.
1: well, and I think that's what makes you sound so unique, Mika, that your journey hasn't been a logistical journey. It's been a bunch of different, like you said, trial and error, because it's easy. And it's something as teachers that we have to be a little bit careful about when you're teaching something like theory or scales, is it's easy for a student to all of a sudden think that that is the parameter then, and you can't step outside that parameter because that's what the rule is. And so sometimes rules or those theoretical concepts, can be kind of stifling because you can't do anything other than whatever that is.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. Absolutely. With my students, I always try to encourage to try out everything by themselves as well. I mean, I can tell things from my perspective and my truth, but also I try to tell them that this not might be all and all answer or the thing you have go beyond. I think the theory side of things is, many people are scared that it, it might be blocking them from uh, creativity in order where I've kind of learned things. For maybe momentarily, when I started getting more into theory, maybe 15 years ago, again, I started getting into theory. Maybe it was limiting myself for a while. I was trying to do things by learn things, but then sooner or later, realizing that, well, that's a rule, but you can go beyond it and or you can forget about it. The theory can be really inspirational. Hearing about different theories, you can try these. And if it doesn't sound good, then move on and don't respect that rule.
1: So as far as lessons go for you, when did you start officially teaching some lesson? Was it online or was it prior to online?
0: For a long time, I felt that. Can I teach? Because I, I never took lessons. Do I have the capability to understand what it is to be a teacher and what is my responsibility with students. I started doing workshops for groups first before I started doing one-on-one private lessons. I was requested in one school in Germany where we would go actually through some of the stuff that I introduced with Mr. Fastfinger, which means the modes and a lot of techniques that we went through with students. That started like maybe 2006 or seven, And a couple of years later, I maybe had my first private students. And the first ones just came here to my studio. I took some guys' online lessons. And now I only have online lessons that I've done mainly for the last five years or so. I mean, having somebody on the other side of internet, there's the challenges. It would be great to be in the same room. It's easier to observate and react. and It's easier to jam. But with the experience, you kind of get used to that limitation. And it's very much possible to share things through the internet, as you well know.
1: So with the online thing, for me, I stumbled into the online thing. I didn't know anything about marketing. I just knew that I was too busy in my life. My life was starting to fall apart because I had no time left in the day to do anything else. I was working so much and I was gone all the time. You know, I had children at home that I was never home for. And I was on the road with bands and I started cracking. I was like, well, what can I do? Once you're working all the time and that's what's paying the bills, you can't not work all the time. I got this idea in my head. Well, what if I went online? This was early on. What if I went online and I could find 50 people in the world that could join me for an hour, as opposed to one lesson every 30 minutes, I could do one hour and make more money and then have some cushion. But that's kind of where the whole thing started. And then it kind of worked in a different way. And then it is what it is now. And I do the same thing as you. I don't do any lessons anymore privately. I've gotten very, very good at saying no to just about everything that comes across my plate, just because I never want to go back to being that way again. I don't even have the energy for it at my age anyway. But so for you, did you stumble into it? Or did you have a plan of you understood what online had to offer?
0: when it comes to teaching online?
1: Yeah, just career building, really, I think, more than just teaching. I think the whole thing.
0: Well, the career building, I'm still wondering what I'm going to do when I get to be an adult. My career building has been challenging all the time because I've been split to two directions all the time, the music and the visual side of me. I still do some post-production stuff and video-related things or motion graphics stuff, and then I do music. The music includes teaching and making music and selling products and stuff. I don't know. Things just kind of more or less shift to these directions. I've been more and more into the musical side of things the last 10 years, definitely. The great side about doing the visual thing is is many times that really pays the bills and it's easier to earn money. At least in my perspective, it's easier for me to make money with that. So when I get money from that, to take it easy on the musical side of things a little bit.
1: Well, and that's an important element that I think people don't realize. You know, when you're younger, I mean, there was a time when musicians made a lot of money. Now there's only select musicians that make a lot of money. And then everybody else is just trying to get by as best we can, especially in in the digital world. And so jokingly, although I being truthful, I tell people that when I finally started making money was when I stopped playing in bands. Now I'm going to get into your songwriting too, because you're amazing at that, but you know i was playing in cover bands on the weekends and doing that sort of thing and it's hard to make a living it's hard to support a family again i'm not saying that it can't be done it depends on what it is you're doing it and how you're doing it especially from the cover band perspective if you're trying to play top 40 or whatever's popular That was always a struggle for me because that is not what I wanted to do. I always wanted to play stuff that nobody wanted to really listen to or it was for a select group of people. And then of course, it's harder to earn a living doing that. So now it's nice because I can go back and I can do musical endeavors that I wanna do and not have to make a lot of money at it. This other thing that has worked out so far, you know, who knows what tomorrow will bring, you never know. But when you love doing it, And that's what I want to talk about is with your music, with your songwriting, because you have quite an extensive amount of stuff that you've done. Do you still do a lot of writing? Like, is that something that you do kind of every day or is it something that you got to
0: make time for? Well, not every day. Sometimes there's seasons when I'm more focused on that side and sometimes I'm more on the visual side of things. Right now, I'm kind of finishing work with an album, so I'm just kind of trying to make sure that everything gets packed in a package that I can hopefully sell a little to get some income and cover some of the costs. And then what happens after that? If I'm wise, I will do something that makes more money, that balances things in that sense. But it's my passion. And it's hard to balance inside if I'm not making the music. It's a thing for the mental side of me. It's very important. Before I invented Mr. Fastfinger, there was a time in my life where I had really hard time finding time for making music. There was a lot of this visual stuff, websites and things that I would do those days. And I started feeling that I was getting sort of kind of uh, really upset or really angry inside because there was something that kind of had to be channeled somewhere. And to me, the music really has been a really important thing. I mean, even before I started playing the guitar, I was creating music, making recordings with my keyboard and stuff. And when I got the guitar playing happening, I had a four-track recording. It was always about capturing music. Still, it's just so strong thing. It's hard to say no to that, even though every time it doesn't make sense financially. There are some moments, like a few months ago, I got work on my music. So it was great. I was getting money to be able to focus on my music, and that was a wonderful time.
1: Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing, is, is anybody that understands passion... You know, when there's something that you have to do, keep your soul stable, it's not about money. It's just, it sucks when you do something that you love so much, but it doesn't reciprocate. Because again, we're musicians. It's not about being wealthy. It's just about making things work, you know, finding a balance between what you want to do, what you love to do, and being able to sustain in whatever capacity that is. It's not always easy to do.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And all the sharing, some of the things that I learned on the guitar. Another thing that really keeps me together is seeing my students. It's a funny thing, especially when this COVID thing started. And we're just staying in our yard, in our house, just seeing people through the cameras, the internet, online students. There was a really, really wonderful thing, especially those days. It was really important to be in connection with people. I think it's wonderful in my position That I have my steady students that I see, like connecting with these people and being able to spend quality time with music and guitar-related things and trying my best to share what I've learned. I think it's a wonderful job to be able to share things.
1: Yeah, I mean, I learned that early on. As much as I wanted to have, as every kid does, you want to be famous and do the band thing. I found my skill was in explaining things and motivating students and making them feel better about themselves, that's why I wound up doing what I do. For me, lessons weren't a supplemental income. Lessons were what made most sense to me because it was the one thing that I could do. Couldn't fix a car engine, no skills for anything, but I could talk to people and get them to understand ideas on the guitar. So let's talk about your writing a little bit. So when you sit down, when you've got extra time to do some composition, like how does it start with you? Do you sit down or is it different every time? Do you come up with a riff or do you have a melody or do you sit on a piano or kind of what do you do?
0: It is a bit different every time. I find the guitar most challenging to start songwriting. So I tend to not start my songwriting with the guitar. And many times I actually don't have the guitar in my lap or anywhere. In the long run, I think the rhythm has been a great inspiration, starting with some kind of beat or loop or something. But for the last five years or so, my holy crail of uh, inspiration has been the iPad and especially this Korg gadget app has been a great way to get a quick start with songs and uh, song ideas. And it seems to be an app where I can write the whole basic song almost like ninety percent and then I just take it forward with the recordings and final tweaks with arrangement other place and the actual sketch for the actual composition really many times is built inside that one app. It feels like it's a candy store for it's called gadget. It's a like a very simple sequencer with a lot of different drum machines and synthesizers that you can load in these tracks and then just start banging sounds and, hitting keys and, uh, and things. I mean, little things. You have a cool patch. You play, push one button, and it sounds amazing. With the guitar, it's like, boom. Well, I've heard that sound so many times. But sometimes when you have a cool patch on the synthesizer, Bee, and that's a little, whoa, what's that? I can hear another sound immediately, like, ding And then kind of, yeah, well, how about if that had that bass note? Then you take another track with the bass, and doom, doom. Then you realize, well, what about if the drums were half-tempered? And then you program that, and things just kind of get forward. And then you realize, well, I need to figure out the B part. Well, let's just take that same drum beat and or whatever, and start messing around. And suddenly you have a B part for the song. And maybe we'll do a C part again and do something else and try to figure out what could be a refreshing for the song. I have some students that have been requesting me to help them with the compositions, and we've been dealing with their music. And their somebody's doing an EP and. I review and help them, give them suggestions what they could try and how to get forward when they get stuck. The more you practice composing a whole song, the easier it becomes. Just like learn guitar solos or licks. Just learn licks. You never really learn to play a guitar solo or improvise. It might give you some help with that, but when it comes to writing songs, many times people can write a great riff or something, but get stuck with things. Put the threshold as low as possible. Start creating full songs that have a beginning, then all sort of developments, and then the end. Because once you start doing that, you start listening all the music with different perspectives. You start listening what kind of things. Oh, what was going on there? How did that do that trick? And then you start figuring out, oh, there's a modulation there or whatever. All the instrumentation changed like this. When you start making full songs, it opens up a lot of mysteries that want to figure out. I think it's one of the greatest games. When you come up with a riff, how do I make a full song out of this? I'm not really into gaming or doing puzzles, but to me, making a musical composition is like a puzzle. Finish up the whole thing and make it somehow feel like it's a solid song that makes sense. And there are some surprises along the way, and it's some candy for the ear, and whatever suits the the theme or the the story of the song. We have like a trio, drummer and a bass player, Thomas and Lasse. We've been playing together. We've known each other since we were like still in teen years. Since Mr. Fastfinger thing started, Thomas and Lasse both played on the, not on the original Tapping Dwarf adventure. That was all machine programmed stuff. Sequels had some real bass and drums. And they were already playing those parts. And they're like my really dear friends. And we do band rehearsals every week. For us, it's more like a club where we get hang out together and might not play too many songs even. We just kind of like do all the crappy jokes, mess around and improvise a little bit. The way many times this song development might go that I create a sketch on this iPad application. And then when I start feeling, well, we could try this with band rehearsals and I program a click there, make sure there's a click track, then we can try that song in band rehearsals. And I'll just mute the programmed crappy uh, drum machine sounds and a messy, shitty bass synthesizer and let the guys play for real, then I might have something to say on the guitar as well to complement the track. And we have a band rehearsals. It's very sophisticated these days. We have an in-ear system, and we have drums mic'd all the time, and we play everything to this mixer that you can multi-track record. If I want, I can press a foot switch, click, and we capture a multi-track. And after the rehearsals, I can take the drum tracks, and the bass tracks to Cubase along with the multi-track from the gadget. And I can start arranging the song forward with the live drum and bass sounds and go forward with the arrangement. And the next week when we have band rehearsals, everybody's been able to hear what we captured and uh, kind of review the ideas. And maybe I'll develop my guitar parts further and the song structure gets to shape. And then we work on that song together a little bit further and maybe the third time we meet, we might capture the final bass and drums as it will be on the record. We have a perfect drum recording. We have closed mics and room mics and everything set. It's just pluck ourselves in, uh, ready to go. It's really great for the creativity. The new album, the following album, maybe that's still a secret. The album is recorded like this. It's like band rehearsals that we capture. It sounds incredibly good.
1: It's like what we do. Your workflow has to be efficient because if you're spending three hours trying to set up a kick drum mic, whatever inspiration you had is probably gone at that point. Well, I don't want to take you too much longer here, but a couple quick things. If you could think of a couple of your main musical influences throughout the years.
0: From the early years, that would be Steve Vai, for sure. He wasn't like every other guitar player compared to him. Felt like there were like blues-based playing. And Steve Vai was something else. It was really inspirational composition-wise and sound-wise and everything. Was, it was really exciting. Then Frank Zappa, like I mentioned. One of the guys that really got me back to guitar. I was kind of lost around the 2000 before I created Mr. Fastfinger, then Rescue Me and get me back on track with the guitar stuff. It was a Swedish Matthias Eklund, who's a wonderful guitar player, and he pushed boundaries. His attitude towards making music, and especially his solo records, his free guitar albums, it was for me like, oh, you can make music like this? The way everything sounded, like the whole thing was really boosting me with inspiration. And along the way, once Mr. Fastfinger came out, I met Jordan Rudess, I don't know how much I've gotten from him. A lot of my fretboard action is based on keyboard envy. I try to solve a lot of the uh, how I find notes on the fretboard by looking what the keyboard players are doing and then watching Cream Theater and Jordan play live. And hanging a lot with Jordan has been really like a great inspiration of once again, attitude and creativity and that state of a great inspiration when it comes to thinking outside the box. There's tons of uh, guitar players and great music. I'm always seeking for new music and listening to a lot of different styles. And just even in, sometimes it's very very selfish. And I try to seek for new sources for inspiration, new sounds. A lot of my listening is based on that. And lately, for the last couple of years, I've been really into more minimalistic music. Always aim for minimalistic things, even though I end up making things very, weird and complex in the end but for me that's been a philosophy for a long time to be able to accomplish something i need to aim to make things very simple make the song very simple then you can finish it if i try to aim songs like i want to create something very complex i might figure out the first riff and that's it that'll be the end of that complex song it'll be more complex than i am But if I start very simple, I can complexify things or make it more sophisticated in the end.
1: I totally get what you're saying.
0: I think that's great. So
1: we're going to wrap this up because I don't want to keep you on here any longer. But if people want to check you out, what's the best place? Because I know there's still MrFastFinger.net exists.
0: Guitar Shred Show. Guitar Shred Show doesn't exist anymore because Adobe ended Flash, so it doesn't work anymore, unfortunately.
1: Oh, I gotcha. So
0: that ended a little over a year ago. That was the end. So you can't access that anymore. But MrFastFinger.net is... My domain for everything I do, you can find about the music that I've put out and the character itself and a lot of YouTube links and stuff that you can find from there. That's the shortcut to everything that I do.
1: So if somebody wanted lessons from you, that'd probably be the best place to go?
0: Yeah, that's the place to get started. Instagram or Facebook, whatever connection.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much, Mika. I've taken an hour of your time and that's more than enough. I appreciate that.
0: Well, thank you. It was great to talk to you and see you. Oh, it's a big smile. Too bad we can't be sharing those German. <laughs> yeah. They fed
1: us very, very well while we were there. It was great. Yeah. With more than just food, too. All right. Well, you take care of my friend, and we'll talk again soon, okay?
0: All right. Catch you later. Stay good. Wax on.
1: If you enjoyed today's podcast and want to learn guitar even faster, Go to GuitarZoom.com and click the Get Started button to get access to courses that are right for your interest and skill level. Again, go to GuitarZoom.com and click the Get Started button.